And now for our feature presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Botching It Up podcast. Every bruise, bump, and botch. Wrestling, you've been put on notice. Oh, let's get ready to ramble! What's up? This is the Botching Up podcast number 18. And hey, we can finally legally drink a beer. Yeah, and you know what we'd rather do than legally drink a beer in a hot summer's afternoon? Watch WCW Halloween Havoc 1993 by ourselves with the windows open. As usual, you with me, Benito, and my good friend Basil. He's gonna puke! WWE decided to have a Halloween special in mid-July, so we've decided to have a mini Halloween season of sorts. We're going to do a load of horror-esque podcasts over the next couple of weeks, and this week we're starting with Halloween Havoc 1991. What a way to start. 20th, 7th of October 1991, somewhere in Southern America... So watching this was a massive mistake. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not sure I really enjoyed this. I tried to. I tried really hard to enjoy it. So you want to go play by play with this, right? So we, we have to start with, uh, well, even if you do, don't want to go play by play with it, apparently we're going play by play with it. So there's some awful, <laughs> super early CGI of a haunted hotel with like Sting and Lex Luger as ghosts shrouded in mystery going through the graveyard in in like pop-up heads was it a hotel or i thought it was the uh, psycho house this, oh i don't know the house from psycho if that was the reference then i didn't get it i just saw like scooby-doo on uh game boy color yeah it was generic spooky house that's fine well everything on this was pretty generic spooky right down to eric bischoff's fake teeth uh, so before we get into it, I just want to say that I didn't think this was a pay-per-view. It just felt like a weekly TV show with a really weird gimmick match and a championship main event. Um, I have to break it to you, Ben. This felt more like a WCW pay-per-view from 1991 than most early 90s WCW pay-per-views did. There were less squash matches, for one. I would, I bet, I, but there was too many squash matches. Anyway, they were, they were less than normal. Plus, you got a big gimmick match and an actual proper main event without run-ins. Mm. I'd be very happy if I watched this in 1991 and I was a WCW fan. So the saving grace was Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone on commentary. Our boys are back. Yeah, and aren't they great? Fucking great. So good. Right down to uh, Jim Ross halfway through a match selling a soft porn shoot in this month's WCW magazine. Uh, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on here. Whatever. So we start this show off then backstage. Is this how we start? I think it was. Backstage with uh, Bishop and he's outside with a lot of cars pulling up. Oh, this was great because they were actually, it seemed like they were queuing to talk to Bischoff. So, <laughs> the one would drive away <laughs> and then about six seconds later, somebody else turned up. Another would drive in. Yeah, it was fantastic. I felt like they quite obviously drove around to the back of the queue again because they were actually trying to enter the car park but Bischoff needed to do that little bit there. Like a detour or pit stop to actually get into the parking. Um, yeah. So the first people out was um, Cactus Jack and Abdul the Butcher and just the idea of them getting out of a car together completely ruins their characters. <laughs> yeah, well I mean Abdullah the Butcher Abdullah the 
Butcher, Cactus Jack, who came out with a chainsaw later on in the and evening. And he just rocked up in a rental car, really shiny. Yeah, Abdullah the Butcher's wearing a nice nice sort of shirt that a car salesman would have. Yeah, he's just like a normal guy. But he's still got his shrunken pygmy head cane, at least. And then, and then Mick Foley, or uh, Cactus Jack, just went bang, 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 like four times. It's like, come on, Mick, you're better than that. <laughs> but, I mean, that is a nice... I like that tag pairing, though, Cactus Jack and Abdullah the Butcher. Yeah. If anything's Halloween, it's that. Yeah, it was great. Um, then two more guys turned up, and I didn't, didn't write it in my notes. I can't remember who they were. So, um, uh, one point, the enforcers, Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco. Yeah, that was the third up. That was the third car. There was a second car before them. Yeah, I can't remember. wasn't important. <laughs> but anyway, so, <laughs> the, attention to you. so the third car, yeah. Third car, Barry Windham turns up with Dustin Rhodes, I think. Obviously, they, they just enjoy riding together. And um, the enforcers, Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco, come over and seemingly appear to attempt to hit Barry Windham into a car door. I didn't really see that much, did you? But the injury apparently was fatal enough for Barry Windham to be taken out of the Chamber of Horrors tonight, which I'm sure that he was actually kind of glad about. And rushed immediately to hospital. By a very bored-looking Dustin Rhodes. Also, they never said, like, Dustin Rhodes never said, oh, shit, we've got to go to hospital. It was Eric Bischoff who was like, they're going to hospital now. (laughs) <laughs> there was a lot of those sorts of instances on this show stupid though stupid writing so yeah so barry windham's out of the match and at no point does anyone ever explain who replaced him right so Do you ever got wind of that he was replaced i'm pretty sure by cactus jack but cactus jack was there anyway no because cactus jack was part of the finish surely he was always going to be there pretty sure that cactus jack was the one that replaced him but they never explained that that was never mentioned let me look this up because this is interesting. I knew I should have written this down. I swear they never said who was replacing him. There were th- there were three replacements. Let me just think for a second. It was three replacements. Well, who else got replaced out of this? Um, let me have a look. Holy shit! The light heavyweight match was a tournament. Explain <laughs> that either. Oh, dude, I, I, I can't find on, it. I just saw on Wikipedia. There's a tournament bracket to get, and it was the finals. Fuck me. JR and uh, Shivani really dropped the ball now. I'm disappointed in them. Basically, I can't tell who was put in. Cactus Jack was definitely put in. Abdullah the Butcher was put in. This was my point. So the whole finish of the match and the crux of the match, really, the two main tag team partners, uh, were put into the match last minute because a collection of people had either left the company or um, got injured. So Barry Windham was originally supposed to be in this match. He was replaced, I assume, maybe by Scott Hall. Um, Abdullah the Butcher was not originally intended to be in this match. It was supposed to be one-man gang, but then one-man gang left the company. And Oz, Kevin Nash, who got jobbed out later on the show, was originally supposed to be in the Chamber of Horrors as well, but for some reason was just replaced for no reason. That's why Oz and Barry Windham are still on the opening graphic of the spooky house. Okay, that makes sense now. Um, there's just so many like fantastic people involved in this show where they're not the people you know them as. It's it's great. Oh yeah, I mean Scott Hall, Diamond Stud looked absolutely jacked. I don't think he was. He looked like that for the rest of his WCW or WWF run. I completely forgot he was in this match. 
Anyway, can I... The Chamber of Horrors match. It opened the show. What is that all about, anyway? Why is it? <laughs> no idea. When I picked this, Ben, I thought this was like a crazy mental 45-minute main event. No. Nope. I didn't realize that I would have to make you sit through the rest of the show. I thought this would be the end. Sorry. <laughs> I just I saw the cage there, and I thought, okay, there's a nice little image to open the show. And then they're like, no, we're straight into it. Fuck it. Let's get out of the way. And... Um, <laughs> It was, I think it was definitely that approach of let's get it out of the way. Yeah, I mean, after watching it, I'm glad it was the opener. I don't know, man. I, I this was so so carny. I, I that I kind of loved it. It was so over the top and ridiculous. How could you not love it? So can I tell you exactly how this match was introduced by the ring announcer? This is the Chamber of Horrors match. This is a special attraction would involve two teams consisting of four team members. The match will be confined in the Chamber of Horrors, which is equipped with several instruments of torture. The object of the match is to put a member of the opposing team in the Chamber of Horrors chair of torture and then pull the fatal lever, which will render one of the teammates helpless. Render them helpless. What, <laughs> what, 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 actually, what exactly is meant by rendered them helpless? Because we've talked about the implements of torture and the chair of torture, so we know that this is pretty graphic, brutal stuff. So why can't they just say the word electrocuted? Well, I mean, he's executed, really. We were talking about the eye versus an eye match or getting suffocated in a swamp. This is actual on-air live death. Yep. Being booked to murder. And the crowd sounded really lukewarm. What I love about the announcer giving the instructions is he seemed so unsure about what he was saying. Someone was just making it up on the spot and next to him. (laughs) And he had to relate that into a microphone at the time it was happening. Maybe he was just checking his contract in his head and making sure he's not part of a snuff film. I think he was just like, look at it. Like, do I really have to say that? Is this Michael Buffer would have made this better? <laughs> <laughs> Easy. I'm not sure anyone could have said the, just the wording so bad, but I just how could you word it any other way, really? It's just nonsense. I reckon Michael Buffer could find a way. So in this match, it says about the instruments of torture. There was chains handcuffed to the cage. There was coffins that a few people in black masks jumped out of. That was one dude. So can we talk about this dude for a second? Halfway through, or no, like five minutes in, Shivani says, oh, there's a guy that's, he thinks that there is a guy that's jumped out of the cage, out of the coffin, because the the camera didn't catch it. And then they cut to uh, a camera shot of a coffin lying on the floor with no man in a mask to be found. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Shivani's like, oh, I maybe I didn't see that. And they just carried on talking. <laughs> And then about 10 minutes later, you see the poor guy again, chained to the cage, looking helpless and like unconscious. I don't, so what do you reckon, Ben? Do you think that this was like, like a random dude, like who, <laughs> I don't know, was trying to make his big mark on against all of these famous dudes? Do you reckon he was like sit, standing in the dark in his coffin thinking this is my big time? And then just didn't get any TV time at all. Oh no, he he got beaten the fuck out of and chained to a cage. <laughs> his this, this this was his big moment. Was he meant to be like on someone's team? Was he like a run in, or was he just like <laughs> like 
another expendable weapon. I, well, see, the thing is, they never explained who he was fighting or why, and we never really saw any shots of him. So he either actually didn't exist and they were just playing mind tricks on us, or I would assume he's part of the match gimmick. Like, he's one of the implements of torture. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. And then Scott Steiner was just like, fuck that. Just beat the shit out of him. Well, I think that this actually, uh, if it's anything, then it's a ready-made toy playset, isn't it? Complete with dude in black mask that jumps out. <laughs> Coffins on all four sides. Oh. The chamber that go, the you know, it, it, this, is, this is made for Woolworths stuff. And I would love to have owned one of these playsets. So talking about other things that you didn't actually see and it made no sense, the uh, you didn't see it on TV, I just know that this happened. The lever was stuck down on the on position the entire time. <laughs> and then halfway through the match, a referee had to climb the cage on the outside and then duct tape it back to the off position. <laughs> and that's why at the end of the match, Mick Foley was struggling so much to pull the lever down because it was taped <laughs> up and he had to untape it. Also, I love the I love the fact that the whole premise, that the whole finish relied on a heel knowing that he was going to electrocute somebody, possibly to death, and not not turning around to check that he's electrocuting the right person. Yeah, he has so long to just to look around and make sure everything's going smoothly. Well, it's more like look around and do- just double check of who you're actually murdering. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty big, important thing in your life to knowingly murder somebody and want to, but then not double check that you're doing it right. Mur- yeah, murdering the wrong person. Um, we'll get to the ending because I want to go through a lot of points on this. I just want to go through one spot with you. Cactus Jack gets... They, so the electric chair starts to come down. Cactus, Cactus Jack is on the top of Rick Steiner's shoulders. And Rick Steiner is looking at Scott Steiner. And I think they're saying something to the equivalent of, what do we do with him? There's not enough space. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I, I assume that crazy Cactus is like, just just drop drop me, motherfucker. Just drop me. So like He goes, he gets uh, a powerbomb move or so, of some sort, double team move onto the floor and lands directly into the cage that's coming down which is a big big structure it's it's like the width of two men it looks like it gets very close to cactus jack being squashed live on pay-per-view rick steiner's trying to like hold it up pointlessly because it's it's too strong for him there's a referee saying cactus jack can you get out now please and there's a, an, like another baby face over like in the corner shouting cactus and i feel like cactus jack nearly died live on air and i feel like he did it on purpose because that's what mcfoley does he for sure did it on purpose he put himself underneath that for a spot and then everyone else panicked rick steiner was shitting himself mate but you know foley was always going to get out of the way <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that he stopped when he did, because if this is his behavior in 1991, and we've seen his behavior in 1998, 2004, what would have 55-year-old Mick Foley done against 72-year-old Ric Flair? If his body could still go right now, you know he would be doing some crazy shit. What, purposely trying to squash himself under fake electric chairs? Yep, that's just him. His, his audition tape to WWF... Well, you've read his his um, biography. Yeah, his biography. He jumped off his own garage 
on some guy on a on a on a trash was it a trash can or a table. Yeah, he'd be doing that shit now if his if he could get away with it if his body wasn't so fucked. But is is no match shit enough for him to think? Oh no, I'm not going to try and risk my life for it. Well, he lost half an ear on an untelevised house show. At least it was on holiday in Germany. In the back fuck of the American South, on a on a match that people are groaning about in 1991. It's crazy to me. This is 1991 because so much of the show feels so 80s, and then parts like oh, like this, like Mick Foley killing himself, feels so not 1980s wrestling. You know, early 90s wrestling should have had a promotion called Blood and Headlocks. Yeah, it's weird because you've still got all that like cartoony, colourful bullshit, and now we've got all of this deathmatch stuff seeping in as well on the same show. I don't know whether you noticed, but like most of the matches, I don't know whether the guys just didn't look after each other as well, but there's so many hard way cuts here. Like there's some obvious blades, but there's also like a lot of uh, matches where people guys are just getting busted open by accident because they, they take like a hard elbow or some shit. And I think in two different matches, we saw very obvious receipts, like purposely going stiff on each other as well. Yeah, like pay-per-view lol. It's not <laughs> a thing. Anyway, so the beginning of this Chamber of Horrors match, I just want to make this one note because it seems ridiculous to me. But the entrances, El uh, Gallante, which that's Giant Gonzalez, right? Yeah. Yeah. Back when he could still move. So he comes out for Team 1. And then Cactus Jack and Abdul the Butcher come out for Team Two. Then the Rick's uh, the the Steiner brothers for Team One. Then Vader and Diamond Stud for Team Two. And then finally Sting comes out for Team One. What sense does that make at all? Wait, I had I had I've probably got that wrong. I've probably got that wrong. No, but I mean, you prove a valid point here. Of do you really know apart from the main guys who was the face and who was the heel? Oh, I had no idea who was on whose team, and it just didn't really seem to matter for the match. I've had a few. I've got a few like mixed up. I thought Scott Hall was on the good guys team. Uh, no, I thought El Gigante was on the good ty- good guys team. Yeah, El Gigante was with Sting and the Steiners. And then Diamond Stud, which is Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, was on Team Two with Vader, Cactus Jack, and Abdul the Butcher. I have no idea. I they didn't like a lot of things on this show. They didn't really no knock against Shivani and Jim Ross, but a lot of it was so chaotic that they didn't even really bother to tell you. I feel like the commentary because it was so confusing the way they walked out. They didn't walk out together, or they didn't all walk out like, "Oh, this is all the Team One. This is all Team Two. I feel like even the commentators didn't even know what was going on. I really hope that this was a playset, you know, because even down to the entrances, it feels like this was built for a, a very long commercial to sell a kid for Christmas. What a fucked up playset, though. <laughs> Are you telling me that you wouldn't want one? I don't know. I had a and- backstage playset where you could dunk a wrestler's head into a toilet and then there'd be like a little button in the toilet that would go, ah! That's funny. This is an electric chair. <laughs> That's not yeah, funny. A, I guess there's a little bit of difference there. Yeah, like the whole shark cage thing that we had two two of those matches like three years ago just so they could sell the playset. This is in, also in an, an electric chair in a country that still uses electric chairs. I don't think they could have got away with this match if they did it in a state that had outlaw executions. 
I, yeah, there's probably not much more. Oh, yeah, I did want to make this one point that the MVP of this match seemed to be a wooden stick. At some point in this match, every single wrestler had used this one weapon, which has to be the worst weapon in wrestling ever. It was a wooden stick. It looked like maybe a mop handle. But I swear to God, every single wrestler had their turn with this stick. See, I didn't even, I didn't even see this stick. Even the commentary team referenced it. Oh God, it's the wooden stick again. <laughs> this was the most clustered, jumbled piece of shit. Even before the electrocution, like just the fact that they had less space than an, than an old school Hell in a Cell to go on the outside. So everybody decided to go on the outside. Why? Because they had a massive electric chair in the middle. They've also got, just to add more space to the proceedings, they've got four coffins out, outside, one of which was used to hide a random dude. The coffins were never seen or, or used again. When the, when the electric chair came down, it was referenced by the wrestlers about twice before the electrocution. Yeah. Sting, Sting got a turn in the chair. Sting got a turn in the chair and Rick, Rick, uh, Rick Steiner got a turn in the chair. So, I mean, at that point, you should have known which team was winning because that was two of the, the baby faces going in the, the chair. Did anybody really hate Rick Steiner enough in 1991 to want to electrocute him? Did anyone really hate Abdul the Butcher enough? I mean, he's a bad guy, isn't he? Yeah, I like him. So do I. Um, yeah, like you said, it was just absolute chaos because there's no space to do any real wrestling. And then all the weapons were just really weird. There was This was a... Wrestle, the wrestling equivalent of a sadomasochistic porno. <laughs> okay. Why did the chair drop down like five minutes into the match? Why was it not there to begin with? Um, probably because they had taped it at the top with duct tape and they somebody had to pull the duct tape off to take it down. I have no idea. Do you really think that if they can't get their handle working properly, then they could get their entire electric chair down from the ceiling? You think it was actually a real production issue? They were like, we can't get the chair down. Fuck it. Just start the match. We'll get the chair. No, down. I, I, would assume, I would assume that they uh, put the chair down five minutes in to give them some time to build some heat. But that's okay. also impossible when you've got eight men thrown together for no reason in a tiny cage with random fuckers turning up everywhere. And like nine dudes wearing bad face, white face paint, who never get mentioned again until the end. Like, there's not even another camera shot on them. Oh yeah, the the gurneys that come down the stage with a stretcher, and they all they all they got a face painted like they're ghosts or something, and then they're not used at all until Adol the Butcher decides to just beat them up for no reason. And this is why I think that Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone did a great job of this because we've been trying to summarize it for 26 minutes and said nothing of real value, just trying to get our heads around every single spot that they tried to throw in and half of them weren't even caught by the camera. Was WCW like a restaurant or pub that has too many managers and nothing really gets done of worth because there's just too many ideas trying to all get involved at the same time. Um, well, that's a really interesting idea. I don't know at this point. I know that when Bill Watts came in in 1992, things got really strict because he thought that it was a cowboy promotion. So I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards, yes, that's what it was like back then. But it, this era, while way more 
free and a little bit too free was better than Bill Watts, who introduced all sorts of crazy disqualification rules because he wanted it as old school as possible. Oh, we'll get on to crazy disqualification rules in a minute. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. But WCW has always been plagued by people doing what they want, whether it's in the back, in the production, or the wrestlers themselves. So you get these ideas layered on top mm, of each too many other, chefs in the kitchen. which starts as let's have a cage match and gets to let's have a chamber of horrors match. And it's the same problem, I think, with pretty much every wrestling company that doesn't have a dictator at its head like Vince McMahon. You, you get suddenly you get matches where the idea is to the briefcase on top of the chain instead of take it down or go into a cell for five minutes as like a cool off period. Yeah. Not naming any names here. Sure, I, I get it. Obviously, we always complain about Vince's method isn't working right now either. But yeah, I think if there's too many people are, are booking one single match, you get a clusterfuck like this. So yeah, but though, I mean, to to this is to before we get to the finish, to the credit of this, it kept my attention. Uh, it it wasn't abysmal. It was a lot of fun. It was just it wasn't. Obviously, it wasn't good wrestling. There wasn't a good idea, and it wasn't good booking. But it was a lot of fun, and you have to admit that. And there was a lot of good good names in here. It was just interesting and cool to see a lot of these guys put thrown together. Like, and I didn't think I'd see Abdullah the Butcher and Vader in the ring, really. But I I enjoyed that. I I'm surprised that. Sting was involved with this, seeing as though he was the poster boy. He was the face of WCW. Yeah, this made Sting look small fry. But again, I don't really understand placement of Sting anyway. This is where when you go back to a show 30 years old, you don't really get it because Sting was the US champion at this point and Lex Luger, of all people, was the heavyweight champion. I'm assuming this match had a lot of build in the weeks going into the show. Well, I've read that the uh, Halloween Phantom was built for months. So I'm assuming that this was hype the shit out of on TV and all of the little kids wanted to watch it. Oh yeah, I could tell the Phantom had a lot of build going into it, but I just mean like Sting being involved in this weird cage match. I'm sure there was honestly, some hype. Honestly, I hardly saw Sting in this thing. It was such a blur of crazy stuff, I didn't even really notice Sting much. Half the time I didn't even know who I was looking at, really. It was so As usual, Cactus Jack was the one that stole the show. Although there was a great spot where Sting just throws a coffin up into the air and it just lands on Foley's head. Oh, yeah, I saw that. that was Jack Cactus, it doesn't matter what he's involved in. He's got to sit, take some sort of crazy bump, doesn't he? Even in this shit show of a match, he did, what, like three bumps? He was, he was man of the match. He was easily the most memorable. I don't actually remember seeing Vader in the ring. So that's how much of an impression I he made on me. I remember one Vader moment, and that was when he was throwing... Well, I can't remember who it was. He was throwing one of the good guys into the chair. And then okay. the only thing I remember from one of the Steiners is that he is the one that reversed Adol the Butcher into the chair for the finish. Okay. But yeah, other than that, I mean, yeah, I can't remember really who did what. So after Cactus Jack decides to electrocute a man without turning around. Kills his best friend. Abdullah sells this chair electrocution like an absolute hero yes he's shaking about he looks like he's about to vomit he, he looks like his brain is actually fried his eyes are going up in his head he's moving his entire body there's fireworks and pyro everywhere 
surely the kid wrestling fan in you had to get a kick out of this. Uh, the special effects was fantastic there was smoke sparks firework i don't know if a firework did it or the ref did it on the slide but at, w- at one spot the ring was on fire and the ref had to stamp it out it was great it, the they fifth- must have put, they must have put these py- this pyro in while they were wrestling there's no there's no other way for them to have managed to do it without like setting scott hall's back on fire yeah so this isn't my note i i read this from somebody else but if you watch carefully i didn't notice all the guys have like this black shit all over them as they're wrestling and you can see across a lot of the guys shoulders there's they're just getting dirty and there's a theory that it's soot from the pyros that are in the ring (laughs) (laughs) that's actually potentially the most dangerous thing in this match then yeah yeah probably that that could have gone off well it did go off and they they were all in the cage when it went off i assume did they all just duck for cover or i didn't actually see what happened when it went off Uh, i think they yeah they all ran out so after abdullah's done winning an oscar about (laughs) half a minute passes where cactus jack finally realizes that he's um He's electrocuted Abdullah. And Shivani shouts half a minute later, the big man is still out. Like, <laughs> like Shivani's genuinely surprised. Yeah, we just executed him. <laughs> Abdullah didn't just pop back up 10 seconds later. And then they start, they start clear, the, the production guys start clearing out the ring before Cactus Jack has even turned up to see Abdullah. Like, I, like, I don't know whether it's bad camera angles and this usually happens or what, but you watch Cactus slowly going over to the electric chair cage to see if his tag team partner's all right. And all I could watch was like two dudes like whistling and picking up coffins to take him to the back. <laughs> and then the good guys, the good guys hit the showers like heels, bro. Nobody celebrated that. They just ran away. They fucking got out of town. I guess just because of the pyros, they were like, fuck this, we're out. This was a gang execution by Sting's team. Yep. They literally (laughs) electrocuted Abdullah and then ran off, not to take any blame for it at all. Just in case he dies. Just don't don't stay around for the police to find the evidence. Sting's Um, a bad motherfucker. So then Abdul the Butcher starts... he just wakes up like Frankenstein, starts like beating every. He beats up Cactus Jack, and then he starts going for production guys. And then there's four guys putting the stage back together, the kind of st- stage bit in between the ring and the rest of the stage. Uh, did you see the Adol the Butcher like full on kicks one of them in the face? Yeah, yeah. As he was getting out of the ring, I saw that. It, it kind of looked vicious as well. Yeah, that guy ate a kick. I don't really know why. And then as he's attacking all the uh, guys that are fake doctor, nurses, whatever, on the stage, he actually stands, he full-on stands on one of the guys. <laughs> I guess Abdullah was a little bit of a bully, or maybe he was just pissed off because he had to be electrocuted for the match because nobody else wanted to do it. But- I don't know. I didn't see it as him being a dickhead. I just saw it as him like really selling the fact that he he's died crazy. and resurrected. Yeah. Well, at least we found out what the ghouls were for. They were for to, to get completely destroyed by, by Abdullah. But I'm more interested to know what they had actually planned to do before Abdullah came back to life and um, beat them up. Were they supposed to take him to hell or heaven? Y- yeah, I think so. 
I think they just came to collect the body. Were they like, but why were they all dressed in white and had white face paint? They were talked about as ghouls throughout uh, by Tony Schiavone. So they must have been spiritual creatures. I wanted to know how they were allowed in and how, how they were planning to dispose of Abdullah's body and where they were going to take him. Because it's Halloween and spooky. It's just one of those wrestling secrets like the SmackDown hacker. Just one of those things that you just got to accept. Do you, um, do you think this is where PCO got his idea for his gimmick? Oh, yeah. No, that's a good idea. I, I, that's probably true. I think he was probably just looking back at the good old days. Was he was he around in his original run at this time or was he a bit later? I think he was. I think I remember him turning up at four years later as Pierre Lafitte in WWF. So I think this was before his time. Okay, so so he might be like a trainee somewhere, maybe watching this shit. Yeah, distant memory of good times. <laughs> I'll make a gimmick out uh, of that. Let okay, let's move on. This um, already feels like a long show, like Don Callis said about Impact. We're only one match in. I'm not sure I can take anymore. Oh, I actually did take a break after this match. Not not on purpose, just uh, I started watching late at night, so I decided to watch the rest of the next day. I'm not sure whether I'm just getting old, but um, whole pay-per-views in one sitting are a massive slog now. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, no, I'm serious. It doesn't matter what era it's from or what we're watching. I have to take regular breaks and regular naps and regular... <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it otherwise. This is the way you said it. You have to take naps. <laughs> like you're 70 years old. Oh, come on then. Um, right. So we cut backstage to the Young Pistols. Never heard of them. They won a match with the US Championship. The Patriots. Never heard of them either. And just the names and the costumes are so 80s wrestling. It's unbelievable. One of the I- guys said. Take a look at the new Sons of the South, baptized on a hundred proof and raised by the blood of the lamb. Great stuff. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's a thing that happened. Uh, well, apparently they got beef with Fireman Chip with his fire safety baloney yeah, that he sells to kids. Yeah, we're going to get onto him in a minute. Now we come back into the arena, and I just wanted to mention this because a lot of the older 90s stuff that we've watched in the last month or so, I've noticed a recurring theme. So we get a big shot of the arena. And I looked up the official attendance, which is 8,900 people. But just this big shot of the arena, I would have said to you there's 15,000 people in this room. Somehow they managed to pack people in and make it look amazing, even though there's half the amount of people that it looks. I just wondered, there's got to be a way they could do that nowadays. Or maybe they can't. Maybe arenas just can't get the same look they could get 20, 30 years ago. That's a super interesting statistic because I also thought that this crowd looked massive and thinking about it, they do in a lot of shows. Somehow, Sometimes even in like um, mid to later 2000s TNA shows, it looks way bigger than it is. And it's definitely got something to do with tight camera shots, good production and lighting. And I feel like that maybe wwe specifically have lost their way with larger crowds and making them look good and sound good just because they're so used to stadiums now yeah that they've gone up too many levels so they they either don't bother with a smaller arena or they go to too big arena and try 
try to shoot a small arena in the same way as a big arena. I genuinely, I'm not sure about you, I genuinely believe that wrestling is better in a slightly smaller arena than a stadium. Oh, I totally agree. The crowd is the crowd is louder. Um, the the stuff looks more exciting. The fans look more excited. It, it feels like a contained environment. Whereas, especially if you're on a, in an outdoor stadium, you can't even hear the the seventy five thousand people that they're talking about attending. Oh yeah, when it's that big, it just feels like here's the wrestling, and there's just some people over there doing their own thing. Like on a yeah, it's, it's just like the space is sucked out of the place. Yeah, in a really small venue it just feels so much more intimate and like you said it's much louder i always liked um the impact arena although they could only get like 1200 people in there it always kind of felt rowdy and like there was just a massive buzz and excitement in the in the room i don't know how many it actually holds but when they go back to having crowds i really hope that AEW tape a show at davy's place like once a month because to me that's like a perfect venue You've got indoor but outside. You can hear everything and yet still have like the aesthetic of the outside. And I feel like we're packed with fans. That would be a really special environment. Yeah, they did a couple of shows there before um, the lockdown. Only like one or two. But yeah, I think that's going to become like their home arena. Just like WWE have Madison Square Garden and ECW had um, their Hammerstein Ballroom. In this instance, maybe the seating was just so steep. I don't know if you saw like the upper balconies. Yeah, they had some real nosebleeds. Maybe this is just how arenas used to be made. Because this is, I mean, it, this is a pure guess, but it, it's been 30 years since this show happened. Maybe arenas have actually changed the way that they're laid out, even. Yeah. It's, maybe it's not wrestling at all. Yeah, that was my take as well, because I think WWE, on average, do around about this amount of people for Aurora Smackdown. About 8,000, maybe slightly less. But a Raw looks much more wider and spaced out than what this did. Yeah. Anyway, it wasn't the best match, but it, it for some reason, I got hooked on this. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. So the, the Creatures are just some guys in masks that come out. It's a tag team match. The Creatures versus PN News and Big Josh. And I went down a massive wormhole with this PN News guy. Well, first of all, um, shout out to Christine Volver, who won WTW Magazine's PN News Rap Contest. She, did, she, she wrote the rap that he said on the way to the ring, right? I I really hope so. Yeah, and she won tickets for that. Great stuff. Um, so this guy is like the 1991 version of R-Truth, maybe. Like, he's not very good, but we all love him and we don't know why. Sure. Um, I mean, he was... He was wearing some unpleasant fluorescent lime green uh, clothing furniture here. And then has like a, not quite a mullet, not quite a rat tail, something in the middle. Oh, yeah, like a, it's like a fat chode, isn't it? I enjoyed that. He, he was just, he was just, he was just fascinating to watch completely. And I had to do all the research I could. I think I even texted you at one in the morning, like we got to do a whole pod on this guy. Yeah, you did text me. You text me saying PN News is one of the most interesting guys I've ever seen. We have to do a whole pod on him. And I sat and watched the show the next day and was going to fire you a text back. But then I thought I'd just leave you to it because I had no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. So I looked this guy up and he had like a whole mini WCW career. 
he he was being built to be like a, a next big thing for some reason, and then just fizzled out. And also, <laughs> his cousin is Doink the Clown. Oh well, do you know who Doink the Clown was? Big Josh. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, well, I, depending which Doink the Clown yeah, no, you're the original about, one. Yeah, yeah, the original one. That's Big Josh. Oh, they were cousins. Wow. Well, I, I guess that explains why there's because the one th the one thing I was trying to figure out with this, and that is what I thought you were most fascinated about, is the the combination of these two guys. Oh, it made no sense, did it? These two being absolutely together. Absolutely. I thought. See, I thought when these guys came out and when the creatures came out, the creatures were the tag team that they were building for some reason. And PN News versus, and Big Josh were like weird jobbers that they picked up from the street. And and Tony Schiavone actually said in this match that he thought the Creatures had been the te better team throughout. And and to be honest with you, the Creatures looked like the actual team, while PN News and Big Josh looked like jobbers. Yeah, they had double team moves. They were working coherently. And PN News and Big Josh were one of those Frankenstein teams. Just I got to admit, this, this was a really surreal job a match yeah no it was crap but i was just mesmerized by it i don't know what it was i just i, I this pn news guy is my new wcw guy well maybe we should go uh watch some other pn news wrestling <laughs> matches at some point i probably won't be into it why isn't it the second time round? honestly well he was the front cover of wcw wrestling's comic book in august 1992 so the guy survived at least another year yeah, um, I got his wiki up. Well, I can't remember what I read, but he, who did he beat? He beat someone at... The guy's still active on Twitter. I'll see what we can do. No, the, the, the guy uh, wrestles in Europe now, just like indies, just tours around. It's fantastic. Um, awesome. <laughs> so at Clash of Champions, he was in a feud against um, Stone Cold. What? Uh, yeah, and then he beat Ron Simmons... And then he beat Diamond Dallas Page at Clash of Champions the, the later year. He beat... Oh, this was it. He beat Bobby Eaton and Terry Taylor in a scaffold match at a Great American Bash. Whoa. That's what I'm saying. This guy is just, is just awesome. Who is this guy? I'm just, I'm just looking him up on Twitter. And on the 10th of July, 2016, he wrote... Prestatin Pontins Holiday Park in Wales. Live in the dream. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. Oh, he still has the catchphrase. He still has the catchphrase, and apparently he's traveling around Wales wrestling. I think we need a road trip. Mate, I, I was fascinated by this guy. He probably doesn't need a whole pod. What we just said there is probably enough. But... Well, that was an interesting PN News insider scoop from you. Thank you for all of this information. Because all I had was that Matt Bourne was Big Josh. You've you've connected them completely together. Apparently they're cousins. Yeah. And what is this world that we live in? So I got I got so ex I got myself so excited. That's when I was like, okay, I have to go to sleep now. I'm too excited to watch the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the worst thing you probably you could have done. You could have with the excitement that you generated from PN News's existence, you probably could have sailed through the rest of the show. I don't know why it tickled me so much, but he just did. Literally, uh, the only thing I've got about this match is that as they go for the the win, uh, Big Josh jumps on PN News to so, like sort of I don't know make the three count more or whatever. Even and though Big Josh like 
proper just stands on the back of Ian News's neck. <laughs> and Ian News is already a big guy. Wait, I know. So that, like, I, originally I thought it was like somebody coming in for interference to get the two count, but no, it was just Big Josh jumping on his cousin. Um, but he proper, he full on stood on the on the poor guy's neck, and Ian News looked up a little bit if he could because his neck hurt now. Just sort of looking at him, saying, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> Fantastic! I love it. I loved it. I was, it it wasn't the best match, but for some reason, I think it was my favourite match. But I think I, I think I made the excitement for myself. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 definitely one of those things. I was saying to you earlier. I was thinking to myself, it's really hot. All of the pubs are open. I'm watching Halloween Havoc 1991, and maybe that's why I enjoyed this show quite a bit. Is in the same way I had to make my own entertainment. Maybe this is just what being a wrestling fan was in the early 90s you made your own fun they provided you with the characters so the next match we go into is bobby eaton versus uh terence taylor and i gotta be honest with you i didn't really concentrate on the first five minutes of this match because i was still obsessed with pmu <laughs> i'm glad you got so much fun out of him um but saying that um i think this match was match of the night for me Ah, see, I actually paid attention to it. <laughs> well, that's uh, so I've, I've, to... I've just got to mention, <laughs> i got to mention, Taylor, uh, Terrence Taylor is advertised as the computerized man of the 1990s. And is is a gimmick I enjoy. And his manager's got like a little actual 90s computer as a prop. Yeah. And she keeps, he, she keeps checking it for her. And I couldn't understand whether... It was like some sort of marketing strategy that he was working on, or he was like doing a JBL uh, and like checking the stock markets. And no, this stable, the whole point of their villainy is that they have a computer which, as far as I'm aware, gives them wrestling strategy to win a match, which to me is a pretty bad wrestler to rely on early 90s robotic programming to tell you how to wrestle a match. Yeah, I think it was giving them tips and tricks throughout the match. <laughs> it's not even it's not even Terry Ta- just Terry Taylor. Ricky Morton actually goes on to use use it as well. What was this stable, man? This stable was fascinating. I love their selling of the computer. They all look at the computer for about two seconds. So I don't know how <laughs> getting any information in from what it's saying. Well, uh, J- Jim Ross goes into like proper Southern. He's like, I'm sure Bobby Eaton, he don't know anything about computer. No, <laughs> why? He just yeah, apparently. This this was super messy. It was a weird collection of chin locks and high flying moves. And Jim Cornette always talks about these dudes, and like these dudes are really famous. Bobby Eaton. The amount of times I've heard Bobby Eaton on a Jim Cornette podcast. Yeah, but Bobby Eaton is one of his boys. So... Well, one of his boys keeps doing big flying dive moves for apparently no reason. There was an awesome uh, dive where he landed on his knees on the guy's stomach. Oh, some of them are cool. There was like a really awesome gut wrench into a powerbomb onto the outside. I thought from 1991, this was a really great match. They had... There was no... But it it was like a random collection of spots. Maybe I went into this expecting 
um, a quality match from these two guys because I know what they can do. But this just felt like a random collection of headlocks, chin locks, and occasionally a dive for no particular reason. And another thing with Jim Cornette, he always talks about how people in 2020 don't sell the headlock. They don't struggle around it in it, and the other guy isn't wrenching it. Well, the only there were so many headlocks on this show, and the only people that did that effectively were Steve Austin and Dustin Rhodes. Mm. Yeah, very true. Um, but back to this match, uh, it was very hard. It seemed like both of them were being heels. It was hard to tell who to support. I think even the crowd felt that as well because they were very conflicted. Bobby Eaton wasn't particularly the most likable character in the world. He he seemed to be a lone wolf. It didn't really hang around or do many baby face things. And then Terrence Taylor is a part of this computer stable that were all bad guys as well. I just think these two didn't gel very well. And it was kind of the beginning of the end for a very hot crowd. Because I felt like the crowd, I don't know about you, but I felt like the crowd was pretty much killed off in the in the match after this. But they were so hot for uh, Sting and the Steiner brothers and like all of the stupid spots from the Chamber of Horrors. They were really into it. I think that's because all the main eventers, the people you pay to actually see were in the first match. And then after that, you know, we had one, two good matches and then the rest were just all squashes. Yeah, definitely weird pacing for this show. Mm. At the, if you don't want it as a main event, you should have at least put the Chamber of Horrors in midway, I reckon. Yeah, in the middle or the co-main or something. Uh, so after that match, we have Jimmy Garvin with Michael Hayes versus Johnny B. Bad. This was also confusing because, again, everyone seemed to be playing heel, except the crowd were fucking loving Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. Oh, there was a lot of big, big white lads shouting the Freebirds' names with their long lank hair and uh, shouting DDT over and over again. So as Johnny B. Bad is making his entrance, um, the other two are in the ring encouraging the crowd to chant Freebirds. And it was like, it was like a riot was about to start. It just showed you how over the Freebirds still were at this point and how they, the, the, they had the crowd eating out the palm of their hand. Like even if the match was bad for the first half of it, they lost the crowd eventually, but for the first half of it, all, all uh, Michael Hayes had to do was give him a look or give him a shout, and they would go crazy again. Yeah, people Mike- definitely paying to see Michael Hayes um, in in this at, on this pay per view, and I really don't understand why they were pretending that he was injured. No, no idea, but he was meant to be in another match, but he couldn't be in that match because he was injured. Well, I think that that was that was their bad because I, I, I'm pretty sure that if Michael Hayes had been on this show, the crowd would have erupted, and it might have given them that necessary sort of blowback to get them back into the pay per view. Yeah, maybe if he was in this match instead of Jimmy Garvin, it would have been much better. But uh, Johnny B. Bad wasn't very impressive either. Well, first of all, his entrance was just ridiculous. He had loved it. He, yeah, I mean, it was great, but ridiculous. He had a costume change mid-ramp, <laughs> and then he had a confetti cannon. And the whole thing lasted like five minutes. Don't forget about Teddy Long. And then uh, th- this was the saving grace for me, for maybe the entire show. I just popped at seeing Teddy Long. Teddy Long's got a special place in certain generation of people's heart. And I don't think it's when he was actually known as anything other than tag team player. <laughs> player, player. Um, I, I disagree with you slightly with uh, Johnny B. Bad. 
he was not a good wrestler and that was quite clear but Tony Schiavone also said on this show that this was his debut year in WCW and and considering that I thought he was he came across as really quite charismatic when he needed to be I I think I was just confused with his gimmick because they were playing up the boxing thing too much but then he has like the kind of fabulous uh, sparkly gimmick it's just like one or the other. Would you remember when we were talking about Ric Flair and how he has almost this perfect symmetry of comedy character, uh, feminine character, and hard hard man? Like man's man, yeah. Yeah, well, I think they were trying it with Mark Merrow, basically, but nobody's got the natural talent of Ric Flair to put it off. So I could mm. see what they were trying to go for an effeminate hard man thing. Because they realize that throughout history, especially with guys like Adrian Adonis even, it does work if you can get it right. But I, I don't think Mark Ma- Mark Merrow was the guy for that. The only thing I liked about this match was the finish. To have the, the one move, the DDT, that the crowd had been lapping up over and over again. And I mean, that just shows, I think, Michael Hayes' intelligence. Because obviously he knew the finish. And he was getting the crowd to chant DDT throughout the entire match to the point where they knew that they were going to see it and they were going to pop like crazy, and then it gets ruined for the heel to take the victory. I thought that was really clever. And then the way that they complained after the match and then celebrated as if they won anyway, so it's like they lost no momentum. They kept the fans even though they lost. But I think that's completely on Michael Hayes. Like Michael Hayes getting the crowd into a move is pretty impressive. Yeah, he obviously knew what he was doing. So there's just one point of this match I want to make. Both guys were faking a hip toss, uh, and they kept reversing it and reversing and reversing it, and then one of the guys get hip tossed over the ropes to the outside, which, to me, in my 2020 mind, didn't think of anything of it. I actually thought it was quite a good spot, and popped the crowd like crazy. But then what happened with the main event? Like, I'm so confused about what this fucking rule is that you can't be thrown over the rope. Uh, you can't be thrown over the top rope when they remember it, I think. Right, but but when it's part of a spot, it's it's just fine. Carry well, I mean, on. It's like when they have a no disqualification match and the ref breaks the submission up. Oh, uh, right. I mean, I think it depends on if anybody in the ring, if it's if it's actually not a spot, if anybody in the ring actually remembers the rule, uh, then it exists sort of thing but it would just seem so stupid that on a show where they made a big point out of this rule that seems a little bit obscure they did they did the exact same thing earlier in the night yeah well i mean you're right and it's just another example of an argument as to why wrestling shouldn't have a democracy in its planning so do you what exactly is this rule do you know no you can't be thrown i I have no idea i assume it's from NWA who wanted proper wrestling competition because like in those days especially with guys like Harley Race the the NWA was specifically focused on making it more than any other show look like a real sporting presentation based upon the history that they'd had as a promotion for like the 30 years beforehand so they kept some of these really antiquated rules just to not to use them as gimmicks like, I don't think in the NWA it was used as a gimmick much to get disqualified for throwing off the top rope. It's just so that people knew that it existed. Gordon Soley on commentary could talk about it and they could therefore sort of assert reality, their realism of, of their product, rather than use it as a gimmick. 
So the idea being that they don't want wrestling matches happening outside the ring. Yeah, they want... because it's a, it's a match of skills of one man versus another man in manly competition. And if you purposely throw your opponent out of the ring, you're, you're DQ'd. But that's not a match of skills. That yeah, they they wanted they wanted fisticuffs and technical ground moves. They they didn't want any sort of thing that represented anything Hulk Hogan was doing. Okay, but then if you leave the ring and your opponent follows, that's totally cool. You got a ten count to get back in. Yeah. So if it just seems like a really silly rule. So it, I'm there. There is no way I'm defending this. It's one of the main things that I hated about early nineties WCW. But for, I think that. If both guys go over, then that's an accident. And if you're having a good match with two guys that are still actually still trying to show their ability against each other and actually into the match, then you're not getting disqualified because it's just gone out of bounds. Well, it's gone out of control. Yeah, sure. That was literally the whole point of the ending of the main event, that it was an accident, but then he cheated. It's a, it's a stupid rule, just like touching all four corners in a, in a, what was it? Strap match. In a strap match. And I'm glad that it's antiquated now. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's stupid, ridiculous, annoying. And it feels like a cop-out. I feel like it was, I don't know, because this is 91. So like you said, it's quite NWA era. But looking at, watching it back in the future, it feels like it's one of those rules that has been left in so that they can have gimmicky finishes to like protect oh, dude, the loser. Dude, dude. Don't get me wrong. I was ex- I was explaining the over the top rope stuff as to why it became a rule in the first place. By 1991, w- WCW have no excuse. Just look at the first match. So it feels like maybe this that was left in so to set up a rematch between the two. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Well, we've discussed the main event before we even got there. So we're still on Steve Austin versus Dustin Rose for the TV Championship. Oh no! Wait, you missed Bobby Eaton holding a pumping pumpkin and looking at it and uh missy hyatt asks him a question he says i'm going to celebrate i've just won a match and he looks at his pumpkin again and walks off alone what's he he doing with that pumpkin i don't know i wondered that for most of the next match (laughs) um and she's obsessed about finding out who the phantom is but like you said earlier they'd be building this up for weeks so i thought this was going to be like their equivalent of the gobbledygooker I didn't look up spoilers before this show. I had no idea that it was going to turn into what it was. But yeah, Steve Austin versus Dustin Rhodes television championship match. Nice to see a TV championship around a promotion. And um, honestly, I was a bit disappointed. But that probably is my own fault because I'm seeing Goldust versus Stone Cold rather than Steve Austin versus Dustin Rhodes. Yeah, sure. And that's kind of how I felt about Bobby Eaton and Terry Taylor just because I'd heard their names so much. It's Bobby Eaton specifically from Jim Cornette, who always talks about great wrestling matches and terrible wrestling matches now. And I thought they had a very mediocre, high-flying spot and headlock match. Uh, so I was completely disappointed with it. So that, that's probably how you felt about this one, right? Yeah, because it wasn't a bad match. I enjoyed it, but I know what these two guys can do later in their careers and this didn't live up to that. And obviously it wouldn't because these guys are so much younger. Yes, probably one of the two best matches on the show for me, but that's purely because there wasn't really much to pick out, as I'm sure you'll agree. Mm. It was it was yeah. the best match on the show more because there's nothing really else to gravitate to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Steve Austin looks like Steven Seagal here. He's got a Steven Seagal ponytail. 
and he's he's wearing billy gun trunks and and when he takes his ponytail out he just morphs into chris jericho it was really weird yeah it really felt like this was two young guns showing off this match felt a lot more faster than a lot of other matches on the show like this is the new generation of wrestlers this is the new style coming in definitely felt like they were trying to steal the show honestly they were saying basically look you've got your chamber of horrors match and you've got all of these 40 year olds trying to have 10 minute matches we're just going to go at it and go hard and we'll do your head spot stuff but we're also going to do like hard chain offense wrestling with good technicality and some high flying stuff Mm. so i went to a time limit draw and it's nothing wrong with that i quite like time limits in wrestling adds to the sporty feel but I feel like it was the only match in the night that they announced a time limit before the match happened. Yeah, I, I did notice that as well. I I would assume... Because it, it was a championship match. Well, I would assume it's a television championship match and those rules have just carried over. Early WCW television championship was exactly what it said on the tin. B is the only championship on the TV, so obviously they probably had to have time limits to make it real in case it went over and like the show went over because of it. But you didn't, you really didn't need to have it on a pay-per-view considering that you bought pay-per-view time and people have bought this show specifically to watch matches. I, I agree with you. I do like time limit finishes and I like time limit matches because it adds more. It just adds another element. Another... Yeah, I, yeah, but it adds, a, adds like a stress to get a pin, right? Yeah. Um, it's another storyline dyna- uh, tool to use. But it's it's a storyline tool which is already being used in the main event with the two out of three falls. I felt really bad for Ron Ron Simmons going into the main event because kind of all of his spots in different ways were stolen, and and to an extent Luger's as well. There was a lot of things that they could have done great in the main event where people would be really interested in it that have already been taken. Jim Ross does a really good commentary section here where he's explaining why there's having so many headlocks to sort of calm the pace down because this is a sort of one fight one full death match where the pin is the pin and that's the champion so they're they're sort of pacing themselves but also wearing themselves down so that they can get the pin easier well that would have been a great thing to say and a, a great spot to have in the Ron Simmons Lex Luger match when it actually counts more they could have said that in the second full and Luger's putting headlocks on Simmons to, to say that he wants to wear him down because this is his last shot but they already wasted that whole idea in the TV championship match and we'd already seen so many headlocks so by, by the time of the main event it, it just felt really really long and dull yeah because Luger even tried to do that I think I don't, I don't know if it was a headlock or what it was but he, he was selling that his back was injured and Jim Ross said, oh, he's slowing down the pace because his back's injured. It's not that he wants to hurt Ron Simmons. It's that he needs a timeout himself. Yeah. You could see that they were planning to do all of these things, but then the undercard stole all their, like you said, stole all of their spots. And the, once again, this is lawlessness, isn't it? This is what, what I complain about with AEW. This is what I complain about sometimes with Impact. That there's not a hierarchy at the top to say you're not doing that in that match and you're not doing that in that match so that once you get to your main attraction which everybody is paid to see they really don't have much left to do that we haven't already seen on the show it's the problem that i have with seven foot dudes doing swanton bombs like how are you going to fill the rest of your show everything that they could do or everything that was in of interest had already been taken so by the time it got to the main event it was just another match totally agree 
I don't know. What did, did you say? This is your favorite match of the night. Yeah, I enjoyed this more than you because they had a good pacing. They had uh, a great showing of sort of technicality. The clotheslines from Dustin looked vicious. I've seen quite a bit of. I, I watched quite a lot of WCW in 1993, so I already know these guys from this era. So it was cool to see them two years before and see where they got to, because by 1993, Dustin Rose is on fire, and, and you can see the formation of it here. But I also like that they went really, really fast and hard and then captured each other in a, in a headlock and then got up and did it again. I genuinely thought that Brian Pillman had turned up at one point to start the Hollywood Blondes, but then I just realized that it was a cameraman with long hair and shorts on. <laughs> he distracted me quite a bit. Was that on the on the stage? There was like yeah. two people stood on the stage. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. I wondered what that was too for a second. And then it was a cameraman and a guy just holding the wires. Yeah, super strange. I love a good time limit match where the heel retains by the skin of his teeth. So overall, I, I did enjoy this, maybe because of everything I'd watched up to this point and uh, retroactively everything I watched afterwards. Well, the pacing was good. And I did like, same as you, I did like how they went fast and slow and then sped it back up again. But I think it would have been better if they had more time, if they went longer to do that. And it was a bit more spread out. And I blame it for the amount of just silly short matches that were unnecessary on the card. But then maybe they never would have got any more time anyway because of the whole time limit thing. Well, just repeating what we said 10 minutes ago, you do not need a time limit championship match when you have got a two out of three falls championship match on the same show. Very true. Okay. Well then after this, we get Kevin Nash as the wizard of Oz. <laughs> but it's even, he's even billed as being from Esmeralda city. Yeah. I have never seen one of the matches where he is Oz. He didn't do it for very long. Did he like, no, I, I know him as, uh, I know him as Vinny Vegas, which was a lot better. But there's been there's been so much talk about this gimmick that he did this, and I've never seen a match. He's like even when he comes out with the giant cape announced as Oz, he's got this look in his eyes like I am Kevin Nash. You know I'm Kevin Nash. You you know I think this is bullshit, but I'm getting paid and you're not. He did not play the gimmick at all. No, he completely and utterly no sold it. Like, yeah, they they're paying me to put this cape on, and I'm just gonna take it off now. Yeah, he takes once he takes the cape off, that's it. That's all it is. Completely <laughs> gone. Um, and then this wasn't even a match. They, all this was was a test of strength. Hold. Well, I I loved I loved Bill Kazmaier. I've never heard of him before, and I've probably never see him again. But he was carrying this giant rubber ball. Uh, of the world yeah globe just to prove <laughs> how strong he is <laughs> it was so tacky he was the world's strongest like, man looks like ryback if he grew his hair out um i too was fascinated with this guy and then the whole match was just they told you this is the world's strongest man and then he fucking proved it <laughs> that's all it was what do you know how he won ben uh with a torture rack do you know what lex luger's finisher is oh no really yeah. Shit. That's what this is what I was. This is what I was talking about. Where one of you even left them. You haven't left them headlocks. You haven't left them time limits. That you can't. They can't do high flying moves. They've still got thirty five minutes to fill. And then this fucking C lister jobber match for no reason stores his finisher. Shit. That's fucked up, man. That's crazy. Yeah. 
because that was that was the actual finish of the full match as well. It wasn't like a finish of first pinfall, second pinfall. That is his actual finisher that finally knocked out Ron Simmons for the three count. Damn, that's crazy. I was really, I actually really enjoyed. Now, what's up? Just remember, close your eyes. And remember, Kev, uh, Kevin Nash in his giant green cape, and what's his name? Bill Kazmaier, right back with his hair out, with a with a rubber ball world. What a beautiful image that is. Sit there, sit there, close your eyes, sit there in the middle of your empty ring on your still chair and remember remember that aesthetic. You're going to sleep pleasant tonight. You're going to sleep calm. But what I was saying about how this show still feels very 80s with all the cartoony elements, that's this match. Yeah, yeah, this is... Well, I, I actually, before I saw his face, I thought that Bill Kazmaier was just Hercules from the WWF who had gotten fired. Does he doesn't look like that, does he? They got, a, they got a, definitely got a similar body, oh. and they've got similar hair. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't understand why Kevin Nash wasn't marketed as a Street Fight fighter character here. He looks exactly like that soldier dude out of Street Fighter too. I'll take your word for it. I don't know. Okay. Let's move on. No, well, I just want to say that there was an absolutely amazing spot where Kazmaier does the, the pull-up over the top rope spot. Oh, yeah, he skinned the cat, didn't he? Yeah, and he's about four times the size of Shawn Michaels, and it was just fantastic. I really liked when Jim Ross shouted about a move that Kevin Nash did, and he said, there's, that's a, there's a good wrestling move, like three and a half minutes in, because he was so bored. Yeah, that's because they did a test of strength hold, for like three, four minutes. That's the longest test of strength I've ever seen. And it was like the entire match. It's nice to know that Jim Ross wasn't salty just as he approached old age. Jim Ross has been salty if he doesn't like something since at least 1991. I love him even when he's doing his job badly. I've gone off Jim Cornette over this show because Jim Cornette keeps going on about how Jim Ross is taking the paycheck and feeling sad. But Jim Ross seemed to quite enjoy this Chamber of Horrors match. And two years later, Jim Ross was wearing a toga in his debut for WrestleMania 9 at Caesars Palace. I think Jim Ross just likes carny wrestling sometimes. Sometimes he wants a good match, and sometimes he'll just take whatever shit they feed him. He loves it. He loves all of it. No doubt. He this... pretends he pretends he doesn't like the bullshit, but I reckon he loves it. I think he does. Doesn't this match, doesn't this whole pay-per-view actually view remind you of... The fact that wrestling came from circuses. Oh, yeah, completely. This felt like a a three-hour circus show, really. It really did. They've somehow managed to get away from it in the modern era of making you realize that this is a carnival and you're called a mark because you're a mark in the crowd. But this, this, everything, like all the gimmicks, all of the match stipulations, the way that they booked things, this was pure put-me-in-a-tent sort of vibe. I mean, I mean, this could even be a positive, but I don't mean it as that. It was the variety on this show. There was just so much different stuff happening in a crazy, not very good way. It was like just coming at me from all sides and I had no idea what was going on. Just like a circus would be. But I'd rather have a a bad variety show than no variety show. A bad Uh, no variety show. Yes and no. I don't know. When it's a variety show and it's just too crazy. But what it's if you just crazy. had a bang average pay-per-view in which everything was kind of just there? But that's also just boring. Like we could be watching Unforgiven 2007 
right now. Well, that's what I said. When I finished watching the show, I said to you, I don't know if I like this or not. It was really bad, but I didn't just want to give up on it like I do on a lot of modern WWE pay-per-views. I'm not sure that I'll ever watch this again, but I am glad that I've seen it once. Yeah, I anyway. don't know if I like it or not. Anyway, Van Hammer. This is Doug Summers. Oh, yeah. There's some guys on the stage with jackhammers drilling into bricks. Real life, legitimate drill hammers and, and legitimate bricks with a yeah. man with a, an electric guitar. And then JR says, pretty boy Doug Summers is a legit veteran of however many years. And then he looks like absolute fucking shit. <laughs> and I don't mean in a kayfabe sense where he didn't get any offense in. I mean, he botched two moves. He legit just fell over at one point. Oh, dude, that was a scary part where he stacks it. And he nearly like went full on into the, the ring apron because he, he, he just sort of fell over. Uh, at the beginning of the match, uh, they go for a body slam, but he jumps up too early before Van Hammer even like has a hold of him and kind of just does a back body drop by himself. At the same time, though, I don't feel like I've ever seen a jobber match with a wrestler who has no idea how to sell anything. This was like when you go see your kid in a year seven school production and you can't hear any of his lines because he's trying to get through the script so quickly, as fast as possible, to get off the stage immediately so as not to be seen again because he's nervous. This is what Van Hammer felt like here. You're saying Van Hammer is the one that was botching it? He rushed through literally everything as fast as possible, which meant that nobody reacted to anything. He was, he was doing like massive massive power moves and he was doing them like every two two and a half seconds he, he literally just ran through the match and ran out again it's like doing a speed trial on a video game yeah this match was one minute 13 seconds yeah. and which is fine for a regular squash that's like three moves but he like you said he got his whole arsenal of moves in that one minute I think that this match was actually supposed to be at least four minutes, but Doug Summers couldn't be bothered and Van Hammer stacked it. Yeah. Van, Hammer, Van Hammer, by the way, I, I watch, I've said this before on this show, but I watched WCW 1993. Van Hammer actually becomes really entertaining at that point. He's, he's a lot of fun, but he was quite clearly pretty young to the business here. And just in case you wanted a sad, not very nice fact, Van Hammer is currently serving time in prison without a prison sentence because he was drink driving and ran over a six-year-old this year. Oh. I looked him up because I was really interested by, by him in 1993, but it looks like even into the late fifties, he hasn't sorted his life out. He was driving 58 in a 35 zone yeah. Yeah, on a bike. Okay. Well that, okay. Oh, fine. I'm sure there's a really horrible joke to be made that I'm not going to make yeah whatever so let's move on then to the junior heavyweight championship whoever wins this is going to be the first ever junior heavyweight champion in wcw was it junior or light heavyweight sorry yeah light heavyweight champion i'm going japanese aren't i i think you went japanese for a reason because jim ross is hyping wcw's relationship with japan like throughout the duration of this match they obviously had struck up a relationship for pay-per-views over there with WCW talent. And I think at the time it was New Japan talent. And this is a lot of similarities between WCW in the early years and sort of leading indie promotions today. He was hyping a tour in January 
And then at one point he says, I think one of the guys does a hip toss and then does another hip toss. And then JR said, explain the difference between a Japanese style hip toss and American style hip toss, which I didn't even know was a thing. I thought they were just all hip tosses. I still didn't understand it. So when you grab the guy's arm and then he does like a front flip and you just go backwards, that's Japanese style. But when you just roll across your side and he comes across you, that's American style. Okay. I didn't know that was a thing. Apparently, or at least it was back in 91. So how are you feeling about Brian Pillman and Ricky Morton? Because I was looking forward to this. I, I was a bit surprised to see Ricky Morton as Richard Morton, completely alone, single, without Robert Gibson as part of a, of a bad guy stable, look, checking out a computer. Like, this is not the, the Ricky Morton I know, which is run by, I thought I recognized, it was run by Terry Runnels, who later went on to be Goldust's girlfriend, Melina, in, in this sort of later. Yeah. Oh, I didn't, I didn't recognize her. Um, I was disappointed in this match. I just because it was the first ever champion, I thought it was going to be a lot better than it was. Yeah, it's another one of those matches which I was quite looking forward to when it was announced, and then it kind of fizzled out. And again, with the with the headlocks, man, so many headlocks on this show. Like I thought, if any anything would be like a more fast paced sort of stuff, it'd be Ricky Morton, who's famous for that stuff, with flying Brian Pillman, who who's got it in his own name, who's like a young up and comer working against the grizzled sort of high flying vet. Yeah. But this was just a lot of more sort of um, ground moves and grinding the guy down, wearing them down with various sorts of locks. And I, I'm usually a, a guy that likes and enjoys these sorts of things. But when you have it match after match after match and it doesn't, it doesn't add anything because there's no psychology going on, it's just dull. Yeah, it was dull. I think Bobby Eaton did more high-flying moves than both of these two did put together yeah honestly which is Bobby, Bobby Eaton did like four I think even PN News did more high-flying moves than these guys well, PN News had more charisma he jumped off the top rope like twice and that guy is like the same size as Biggs not height wise but roundness wise this was a steely vet versus young and accomplished wrestler match uh, I, again Brian Pillman really impresses me in 1993 obviously he hadn't quite got there yet but then he they get the win out of nowhere and the camera doesn't... We haven't talked about the, mo the most important part of this show so far. I can't believe uh, that we haven't got to this point. Uh, the ref cam. The ref cams. The amount of feet that we saw in wrestling matches was great if you're a feet guy. Apparently, this is how the ref stares. They just, they just look at the footwork. <laughs> That's why... That's no, but Ben, this is why that they can never see what's going on behind them or oh, somebody pulling the hair or the managers. <laughs> this is living proof that referees just look at the floor, which is why all the bad guys get away with everything all the time. Could I just say a really horrible joke? Uh, Go on. It, it looks like those helmets that handicapped kids have to wear. It's true, man. This I was going to go with bike helmet. But no, it's the ones you have to wear in your wheelchair. Okay, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a good look for the refs here. But I will got to give WCW credit; they they tried something very new and inventive. Oh no, I agree with you. I, I, the aesthetic wasn't great, and we finally realised why refs never see anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I saw so many, so many people's feet every time I got to that camera. The ref was looking down. Maybe it was just the way the camera was angled on the helmet or something. It would no. I think it's why it, ex- it explains why every referee you ever see on TV looks like they've been picked out of the back of a farm. It's because they have. <laughs> They're just pushed out and given a shirt. <laughs> yeah. Um. I'd, but to be fair, there was one or two really killer shots. Um, I can't remember which match it was, but someone ran up the ropes and then did like a crossbody backwards, jumped up and then did um, uh, like a hip toss or something or an arm drag. And they all did it all from the ref cam. And it was like oh, a killer angle. This genuinely wasn't the worst sort of um, idea I've ever seen to do new camera shots and stuff when they did the greatest wrestling match of all time with edge and Norton, they tried out a couple of camera shots where it went underneath the, uh, arms to give out like unique perspectives, which immediately was just a big no, no, because it broke all sense of reality because you know that they had a camera underneath their arms while they were locking up. In that, and then they split apart. In that match, wasn't there a cameraman actually in the ring at one point? I think they were just trying to do that to sell the idea that these were, that were, that was where they were getting their shots from. Yeah. But with the underneath camera, it was just it just was su- suspend. You had to suspend too much belief. Um, but this this is uh, was an interesting idea, which obviously just didn't come to fruition properly. Well, someone else but, has done it. I don't know who, but in um more recently, someone has done it with GoPros. Okay. Maybe impact yeah. DNA. What well, respect for them for trying it out in 1991? Whatever you say about WCW, WCW, they were trying crazy stuff out, like 1991 to 1993. 1993 was when they were doing like movie films before WWE did this year. Mm. They had some weird ideas. They all pretty much came from the ro- the mind of Dusty Rhodes. Oh yeah, I know this B movie stuff was happening in the 90s. Um, it's not anything new. It's just that it's every month right now. Anyway, the, Pillman got the win out of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. After it. being hyped to be a, like a long brewing professional match. We we missed the finish because we went back to dopey ref cam ref. <laughs> 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 uh, it was okay match. But... Uh, um, this is this is when my girlfriend got in from work. She just sort of looked up. She wasn't like particularly paying much attention to the match, but she was like, "What's that stuff on Brian Pillman's elbow?" I was like, "I don't know." And then they showed a replay, and Pillman comes off the top so hard that somehow he manages to pull out uh, Ricky Morton's hair with his elbow. Ooh! After the match. Pillman has still got hair on his elbow from Ricky Morton's head. Oh, that sounds painful. Yeah. Oh, that sounds rough. I didn't even notice it. Because you're so used to just like sticky wrestlers having bits of <laughs> shit on their elbow. <laughs> sticky wrestlers. Um, no, I didn't notice that. The Zed Man versus the Halloween Phantom. Oh, yeah. That happened. This was proper tacky. I'm just gonna you you. That's when you say, "Oh yeah, that happened." That means I'm sick of doing play by play now. Can you just give me a break for a second? <laughs> this was a proper tacky wrestle crap match with store bought Phantom of the Opera fancy dress costume to finally announce the Halloween Phantom that they've been building up. All oh, whoa, shows. whoa, 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 whoa! They didn't announce during the match who it was. 
The match happened, then we had the tag team match, and then he came back out again to announce what he was. This made absolutely no sense, but the, actually they did announce who it was. They said t- Tony Schiavone hints that the Phantom's finishing move should be called the Rude Awakening. Not because you didn't already know that from looking at the holes in his face mask. Yeah, so there was a hole around where his moustache is. <laughs> <laughs> this was an absolute mess. Like, what, what was this about? I don't understand why you would put Rick Rude under a mask, a tacky like pound shop Phantom of the Opera mask, why you would have him wrestle a match, why you would then move on for it with, with no sort of any more explanation, have another match, and then have him come out again. Yeah. Why not just introduce Rick Rude, who was obviously in very early uh wcw a very early 90s a very popular wrestler people would probably be more it probably would have made rick rude look better if he just came out as rick rude rather than having a really bad jobber match in a shitty mask oh sure but let's unstitch this bit by bit first of all why did he go back and then come back out again why didn't just poorly dangerously come out after this match and do it right there and then if you have to have it at all, then I have no idea. I'm assuming this is one of those things where they had the idea and they did it before they knew who was going to be under the mask. Oh, you mean like a phantom that was turning up? Yeah, and it was like, it was like, oh, this is not going as well as we planned. We need to unmask him at Halloween Havoc. Let's just have it as a really cool big reveal. So it was like, it was a shit debut for Rick Rude, but it was the best way they could have ended that story i hope that's the case if that's so that explains quite a bit because from just from what i saw i thought this was absolutely terrible i don't i don't know if that is what happens it's just that kind of thing happens a lot in wrestling yeah but i went into the patriots and the enforcers i didn't really pay any attention to the patriots and the enforcers because i was still trying to figure out why you would sign rick rude him under a bad mask give him a bad jobber match when everybody quite could clearly see it was rick rude and then just let him walk off with his mask on because i had no idea that they would come back with a promo which still doesn't make any sense but at least they did it yeah it was I, I, so weird way to this do was you. bizarre it was like using rick rude who was obviously like quite a catch for wcw to play off the gimmick of the pay-per-view which nobody really cared about that much yeah, I mean, they mentioned it twice up until that point anyway. So it's like the interviewer didn't even really care. I didn't understand this whatsoever. Although Paul Heyman's promo was fantastic, as always. Paul, Paul Heyman's had great shouty promos for 30 years. I didn't even really know what he was talking about in particular here, but I thought it was great. Got the line written down, which is fantastic. He declares war on WCW Championship Committee. He wants to bankrupt the company... Uh, so that he can buy the company and fire everyone. Nice. <laughs> cool. That's probably Lex Luthor stuff, that. So so he's he's challenging Sting, and then he unveils Rick Rude to challenge Sting. And then Rick Rude's promo was really good for about a minute, and then he started repeating himself too much. And the longer it went, I was like, okay, okay you're ruining your debut. Also, the first minute that you say was good, I could hardly hear because they had the sound playing over him. Yeah, the music was playing, yeah. Halloween Havoc 1991 to Slammiversary 2020. Some things never change. The opening promo, the debut of the guy that you've hyped up 
get his microphone working and turn off everything around him. These same mistakes have been made by wrestling production for 30 plus years, Ben. How? How is the, how do we how have we not evolved as a wrestling species yet? Simple stuff, really. And and think this was produced by an actual television network as well. It's not oh, a cowboy outfit in Canada. Well, I mean, this this company they even like uh, they Katie Jumper. You heard of Katie Jumper? No. Well, she did catering. It was in the WCW credits at the end. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't pay attention to the credits, but I found it very funny that they credited the driver, the gaffer. If they can write a little production thing thanking Katie Jumper for doing catering, then you can get the fucking mic working without the music playing for Rick Rude's debut promo. Maybe it was off the cuff. Maybe it was just like, oh, Rick Rude's not going to do a promo. So after Paul Heyman shuts up, played the music, and then Rick Rude was like, fuck that. This is my debut. I'm going to I'm gonna say something. This was bad. It, was. It, it wasn't quite as bad as Bret Hart's WCW debut, but it was getting there. Yeah, it was bad. But then the tag match. So you didn't enjoy this. I kind of enjoyed this match. I just kind of, I wasn't really there after that. Sure. That Halloween Phantom thing. I, I just sort of I, I had a cigarette and watched it while I was having a cigarette. So I, I didn't really take many notes and I didn't really care too much. So Arn Anderson was just a freaking beast. Well, I mean, he is who he is, but he was just no nonsense. He just didn't give a shit about these two clowns dressed as a fireman yeah. and a soldier. And he just freaking headbutted and spine busted both of them and was just like fuck you guys i win good like because i I was trying to figure out why the u.s tag team champions are are strippers (laughs) they basically were weren't they yeah sort of sort of a shame to me that i didn't i wasn't really into this match and i didn't like it mostly because biff and chip whatever the fuck their names were were so so like young and didn't really know what they were doing that they were just all over the ring like uh, maybe i've just watched wrestling for too long and i noticed these little things but they just weren't in their position at any point any time they didn't really have like what what commentators call ring awareness which is always like a gimmick right where they say they know exactly where they are that makes them a great technical wrestler was well, actually true biff and chip didn't really know where they were and it made their job like Arn Anderson and Larry Sabisco, who are both like you know obviously legends it made their job quite difficult to get them into positions and get them into move stuffs and it's no surprise to me that you noticed Arn Anderson getting really pissed off with them and just doing uh spine busters and stuff that probably wasn't a gimmick he probably was just getting sick of them because by the end of this match Zabisco's looking pissed off because he's just trying to like get some actual like a proper move set out of these guys and it's not working at all it feels like they're tripping over them yeah like they're just kind of in the way while the forces are trying to have a good match and these two guys are just laying about everywhere definitely like no offense to these guys wherever they are now whatever they're doing but these guys shouldn't have been on tv let alone u.s championship it feels like the whole point of this match even though the enforcers won I feel it feels like the whole point was to make the Patriots look good. Definitely the soldier guy. He had a lot of strong big man moves, kind of taking on the forces two on one a lot of the time. But then Arn Anderson just came out of it looking like the man at the end anyway. I'm glad Arn came out of it looking good. What do you think about the idea that WCW had like almost a feeder tag 
tag team belt within their structure. Could you see this working or even like being used in somewhere like AEW? Maybe AEW could get away with it just. Only said them because they have so many tag teams at this they point. They have a lot, don't they? But if, I don't know. It feels a bit like you're watering down the division if it has two belts. Yeah, I mean, I did think that it was a bit over the top, but I, I know that WCW in 1993 had three television shows, I think. So they had a lot of time to spare, which is why they're at, even adding championships with the light heavyweight. Because they had a lot of championship belts, right, in the mid-90s. It's just because, it was, I'm pretty sure it's because Turner wanted WCW TV on all over his channels. What, like not primetime positions, but he wanted a, a bit of WCW wrestling everywhere across his network. So they had to produce way more content than they actually had, which is why if you go watch a lot of WCW shows before the dawn of Nitro, they're just, they're like two hour block shows full of jobbers. And sometimes like mid card guys or main guys having longer matches with jobbers just to fill the time. I feel like this is where Cody has gone wrong quite a bit with AEW Dark. He's taken a, a few too many things out of his play out of his dad's playbook because I don't think that this was to build talent. This was just to f- literally fill time. That's why they had so many championships. And it's why they had mid card guys having ten minute matches with jobbers. And I watched AEW Dark again recently. It still feels that same sort of vibe. And if AEW Dark is a problem for you, they're going to get another proper tv show really because dark is on youtube right yeah so i don't know either that they're gonna move dark onto tnt or a turner channel whatever or they're gonna invent a entirely new tv show but they've said i can't remember what it was but when they re-signed their deal and it's like oh we're on tnt for another five years or whatever they signed they also got an option to run a second tv show well, it's goddamn Turner again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I forgot that, obviously, AEW and Turner were, were now in positions of power. Like, yeah, no, the whole thing with WCW was they had so many jobber filler shows going on, and they weren't just filled with jobbers. They were filled with, like, main eventers turning up for about 10 minutes. But it was because Turner wanted it all over his programming. I think it was a very bad road for AEW to go down until they've got an absolutely massive roster. It's all money, though, isn't it? The more our time you've got on, the more money you're making. Well, you say that, but I do feel like Raw adding a third hour was one of the most damaging things that WWE ever did to their product. Oh, creatively for sure. But the only reason they stuck with it is because they make money out of it. They don't make viewers, though. Nope, they lose them. So we're on to our main event now, right? Ron Simmons versus Lex Luger. And we had a great video package. Old school baby face. <laughs> Revisiting his old college campus and reliving memories. He's doing like proper, proper Rocky babyface with this. He's he's got a training montage, looking focused, pumping iron, running upstairs, talking to his old like college dean. And it worked because I wanted to see Ron Simmons win this match. Well, I'd, yeah, this video package and the the whole match itself. Ron Simmons worked so hard here, and he was such a such a babyface. Like I, I don't generally go towards baby faces and enjoy them if they're giving me the john cena vibe but i was rooting for ron simmons throughout the whole thing i wanted him to win and by god was he jacked man so jacked bro (laughs) both these guys were though yeah but ron simmons was noticeably like twice the size than what he was in the late 90s 
I'm pretty straight, and I've really enjoyed the aesthetic of these two <laughs> massive dudes sweating. On this was a man. Vince match. Two massive guys just, bam, smashing into each other. Yeah, maybe that's why Vince uh, emasculated Lex Luger when he got to WWF by pretending to give him the championship and then not. Maybe it's because he he, he missed the sweat of the WCW days and he wanted him in the company because he wanted to like just stare at him. So by the time he got there, it was too late because he already had his new Jack guy. Brilliant. So this was a two out of three falls match. Just the way the match was laid out, you knew Lex Luthor was going to win. Uh, Simmons got the first fall and then something else happened. And when that happened, I was like, okay, Lex Luthor's winning this. Can't remember. It was a pretty awesome first fall as well. It was like a proper spine buster, but it was like a, like almost as also a sloppy one. It, it looked like a proper American football spine buster. And I really enjoyed that because the last third of the match as well revolved around his previous, I assume, college All-American football career, which paid into the video package. So I thought that was, a, for once in wrestling, that was a nice composition of ideas and sticking to them and using thematic throughout the entire presentation i enjoyed that yeah warren simmons basically lost the match because i don't even know what you'd call it but he did like a nfl style tackle into the ring post a three-point stance yeah to Jim and he fucked up his shoulder and then lex luther was able to do the pole driver and get the win uh, do you know what he calls his pole driver what the attitude adjuster. Oh, really? Yeah. How crazy is that? Well, apparently it worked out for John Cena, all right. But I wouldn't have stolen a finisher of off of Lex Luger, particularly. Well, it's just the name, isn't it? But yeah. John Cena called it the attitude adjustment. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody in WWE's office just picked one of Lex Luger's old finishes and thought nobody would notice. Probably. Uh, so the one thing I really loved about this match is Dusty Rhodes came out with uh, Ron Simmons and Harley Race came out with Lex Luthor. Very, um, everyone knows that they're huge rivals and they they added to this match. They didn't take away. I felt exactly the same. This was also a highlight for me. It made the match look way more important. Um, and the corner breaks were a nice touch, adding some sort of realism to the proceedings, but also making us aware of how seriously people like Dusty or Harley Race felt about this match what i loved was definitely after the first full so ron simmons got the first full dusty comes in and is just doing this massive prep talk that you're you're one up that you got this the goal's basically around your race and harley race just comes into the ring and is just looking at him and it's just like what what the fuck like yeah. <laughs> and and he himself gets mesmerized with uh what dusty Rhodes say and then like barely says anything to lex luther and then the commentators are like well Good talk, Chief. That's really going to spur your man on. This was 100% entirely unintentional, but I even loved the fact that Dusty Rhodes was super clean and calm and Harley Race was actually physically sweating. Um, yeah. Maybe because maybe because he had had too many beers the night before. Maybe he was just feeling a little bit unhealthy at this point, but it added to Tony Schiavone saying, he's sweating. Luger's losing. <laughs> it really, it really worked. I wonder because he was wearing like a three-piece suit. I wonder if he purposely made himself hot so that he'd know he'd sweat and you know to play into the story. I wouldn't put it past a, an old old dude like that uh, who knows all the tricks in the book. I'm sure. Over the last couple of months, while we've watched early '90s stuff, I've kind of enjoyed a few Lex Luger matches, but I've never been massively impressed with him. He seems to be somewhat like. 
Dolph Ziggler, where like he doesn't do anything wrong, but just nothing he does is crazy exciting. Luger's a bit problematic because I've seen a lot of Lex Luger matches across a lot of different promotions at this point. And people always say that he was a terrible professional wrestler. And that's not true. Because Lex Luger has had some great matches. It, probably not in WWF, where most people know him from. But uh, his earlier WCW matches, and some of his later ones as well, were really, really good. The problem with Lex Luger is, I think you've hit the nail on the head with, with, with Dolph Ziggler there. He's really good when he can be bothered. When, he's, he, when he can't be bothered, he will put no effort in, and thus he will not get anywhere. And I think this is a big reason as to why Vince changed his mind about Lex Luger winning the WWE Championship in, in 1993. It's, Lex Luger is hit or miss not because of his own wrestling ability or his charisma, because he has both. It's just whether he can be bothered to be in the room on any given night. Remember when we were talking about Ric Flair and I watched that really weird Starcade where it was just four guys having the same three matches. Yeah. Lex Luthor put on a fantastic match with Sting. Maybe one of the best Lex, Lex Luger matches I've ever seen. But then he also had a match with Great Muta that was just an absolute dud in the same night. Yeah. So, well, he's probably like, I've got one big match coming up, so I'm not going to put much effort into this one. But that's kind of how Luger felt. He feels like such wasted potential because he's he's spent most of his career being a little too lazy, and thus he's never gotten the push that he really deserves. Uh, but yeah, you're right about Ron Simmons. This definitely felt like maybe he thought this was his big break, and even though he was booked to lose, there were so many. You know, I don't know if this was his first ever main event spot, or I think it was close to it. I think he had been around the sort of area for about a year. This was his first in with the World Championship, I'm pretty sure. I think before he was going for the US. Okay, well, he looked amazing. Coming out of this, if I was watching it at the time, I would definitely want him to do bigger and better things. Absolutely. He was a, he was such a uh, awesome babyface at this point. I hadn't actually seen much of his early work beforehand, uh, but I, I'm really sold on it now. I, I kind of want to go out and check more young Ron Simmons matches out. I know that he wins the W. He finally win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship some point later in 1992. Oh, that's not that long... far away. No, it was a long build to finally get him there, though, is what I'm saying. That sounds fantastic. I want to watch him win that now. Yeah, same. Um, First black heavyweight champion. Ever? Oh, I guess. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, Tony Schiavone says that this will go down as one of the greatest matches of all time. Yeah, I got that too. Wait, it hasn't. <laughs> From hindsight. Uh, yeah, I mean, credit to Ron Simmons for keeping me in this and keeping me engaged and making me want to root for him. I just wish Luger had put in his full effort in and I think we might have gotten a really great main event here if well, so. I think it's not just Ron Simmons. I think a lot of praise could go to Harley Race. Harley Race cheated a few times and... Even though he wasn't the active competitor, he was almost the perfect heel to foil Ron Simmons. Yeah, and, and Dusty Rhodes was also great as the mentor, like old man Rocky talking to new Rocky as well. So overall, you're a 26-year-old in 1991. Uh, how do you feel about this Halloween Havoc? Um, well... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
given the, given the competition at the time, which is WWF, I feel like this would be really disappointing for me because WCW would be my alternative promotion that I would like watching because it was filled with actual wrestlers wrestling. So I think the Chamber of Horrors would have really wound me up as a 26-year-old in 1991, especially because the internet and the world is not as open as it is now. Like, I would have to try and defend this bullshit to my mates in 1991. It's pretty difficult. Yeah. And then following this, did you see the trailer for the next pay-per-view? I just read Lethal Lottery. The Lethal Lottery at Starcade 1991. So this is... I literally watched this a while back, but I didn't. So there is a load of tag team matches throughout the entire show, and all the winners of those tag team matches go into a final Royal Rumble-style battle royale in the main event. Nice. Uh, and that star- Starcades are so weird, man. They were just a weird tournament gimmick every year. Everything in WCW was pretty weird. I, I think that's mostly because nothing stuck. They never had any sort of planning and organization to make certain things feel the same. So from year to year, you could have the same name, but everything would be absolutely manic and weird in comparison to the year before. Different, yeah. So who do you think wins the Battle Bowl, Battle Royale at Starcade? Um, I'll give you three guesses, and you'll definitely okay. get it. Ron Simmons? No. Sting? Yeah. Yeah, well, it would make sense for either of those two, but Sting really needed something to do coming out of this. Mm. I'm not sure I'm going to watch that one. well then there's the wcw um new japan show uh in january quite interested to see some of the japanese wcw shows oh shit this is new japan's dome show because it's the january 4th show this is like their wrestle kingdom before wrestle kingdom was a thing well you just got really excited there so i know that it's something decent well it's new japan's dome show has always been their wrestlemania but it's always had different names throughout the years but it's always been on January 4th every year since so like the 80s. So this was like their big WrestleMania event with WCW included? Yeah. Uh, okay. What do you, what did you think of this show as a 26-year-old in 2020? Uh, not good. There was a few redeeming qualities. Did you, did you at least non-critically enjoy yourself at certain points? Uh, at certain points, yeah. I still don't know if I enjoyed the show as a whole. <laughs> I, I want to, but at the same time, it's like, no. There was too many squash matches for me. I didn't mind the squash matches. It was the long, drawn-out headlock matches, which I thought were going to be fast-paced, yeah. psychological, or decent. But just for me, squash matches don't have a place on a pay-per-view. I don't like the idea of having to pay money to watch a show and then just see four-minute matches. I agree. If If you have one, you do one. And you do one that is the equivalent of like a killer cross. Yeah, I mean, if it was just the Kevin Nash versus the strongest man in the world guy, just to get him over, and that was the second match on the card, then fine, cool. That is what it is. But there was a series of three or four matches in the middle of the card that really separated the opening matches and the main event oh dude this was like a tale of two shows you had the main event which everybody was interested in and the chamber of horrors which everybody was interested in and they were bookended by two hours and 20 minutes of non non built up poorly executed mid card matches mm. basically if i want to be blunt i said to you that i really want to get on some late 
WCW stuff, which I think we'll do at some point. But I think I'm done with early 90s for a little while. I love the fact that you want to get on to late WCW stuff like you actually think that's better than this. Oh, no, I know it's worse, <laughs> which is why I want to check it out. Okay. But anyway, so we're going to continue on with our horror season. I really want to have a deep look at Doink the Clown. Okay, we can do that. I don't know if that I don't know if it's that's good or not, but it's just it's an interesting character that kind of was around for a long time, but also just didn't do anything. I know that the original Doink was supposedly a very much admired wrestler who worked in ECW, and all of the wrestlers thought had incredible amount of skill. And it was supposed to be a lot darker than it actually ended up being. So it's an interesting character in itself. Should we do that one for next week? Yeah, we can do Doink. All right, bro. Okay, I'll see you later. Good work today. <laughs> All right, see you. All right, see you, buddy. Like, share, and subscribe to keep it botched up, brother.